Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. That's his. Recorded live. Yeah, they do it at the beginning of everything. But, um, all right, well, I'll get ready to start. Um, okay. Today. Today I have with me Dr. John Berg, who's a veterinarian, and we're going to be talking about spleen tumors and spleen cancers. If you listen to my last podcast, I mentioned that I had a dog, or my son had a dog, who had developed a spleen tumor that was malignant and died shortly afterwards. So that kind of made me interested in the subject. And when I was reading the Your Dog newsletter from Tufts University, I saw an article about spleen tumors by Dr. Berg, so I knew he would be the perfect person to to speak about spleen tumors. In fact, our family had two other dogs that were affected by spleen tumors. I had a border collie who, when she was 12 years old, the vet discovered a tumor at a routine checkup, and I wasn't sure whether it was worth having surgery on a dog that age, but we went ahead with it when he told me that otherwise she might die of a ruptured spleen, and luckily that tumor was benign, and she lived another four and a half years. And after my son's dog died, his um, in-law's dog died of a ruptured spleen tumor that nobody knew that she even had. So I guess we've um, been through the gamut, and that's what got me interested in talking about spleen tumors. So, Dr. Berg, can you tell me a little bit about yourself? Sure. Uh, thanks for having me. I'm um, I'm a longtime veterinarian. I, I graduated from Colorado State University in 1981, a long time ago, and I did a one-year internship um, at Cornell University the first year out, and then I went back to Colorado State for a surgical residency. That's where um, you get trained to do surgery in in small animals so I treat mostly dogs and cats and the residency is a three-year thing so after that I started out in a private practice at a um, referral practice south of Boston and then a position came open at Tufts University and for those of you out there who don't know that we're located in um, Massachusetts um, and, and the veterinary schools in central Massachusetts. And a faculty position came open here in um, uh, soon after I started in private practice in the Boston area, and uh, since 1987 I've been here at Tufts. And what I do mostly is soft, or not mostly, compl- exclusively, is soft tissue surgery in dogs and cats, um, which basically means it's any surgery other than orthopedic-type surgery. And I sort of have a special interest in in surgical treatment of of cancer in dogs and cats. Uh, So I've been a faculty member here for, I guess it's 27 years now. Okay. You know, we're talking about spleen tumors today. Somebody doesn't know who's listening. Where exactly is a dog's spleen? Yeah, that's a good question, actually, to start out with, because many people have never heard of the spleen. When you tell them you think their dog has a tumor in the spleen, or this can affect cats too, but much more rarely. 
um, many people's responses, okay, that doesn't sound so bad. Where's the spleen? The spleen is a is a big um, solid organ inside the abdomen. It's in the middle part of the abdomen in a dog and a cat, uh, sort of on the left side. Um, and it's it has a variety of functions, but one of its major function is, functions is to store red blood cells uh, so that if there's a sudden trauma or something like that that causes bleeding, the spleen can actually contract and release those blood cells into the bloodstream and, and provide a sort of an almost an emergency internal transfusion, I guess you could think of it as. And it also has some roles in the immune system. Um, but it's an organ that if it gets cancer in it or tumors in it, benign or malignant, um, the spleen can be removed without really much of any consequence for the for the animal. So even though it's providing that reservoir of red blood cells, if it's removed, the dog um, gets injured. They can still make, they can still respond then to an injury or other cause of blood cells. Yeah, I mean theoretically, there are downsides to taking the spleen out, disadvantages to taking the spleen out, but they're more theoretic than real. Um, so if a dog or cat loses their spleen, yes, it's true they'd be less able to respond to blood loss, um, but most animals never get in a situation where major blood loss is actually a problem. Um, but at least theoretically, they'd be somewhat less less able to to respond to, to acute blood loss, and at least theoretically, maybe a little less able to, to you know, fight off bacterial or other diseases or infections. But in reality, those things are not real concerns, and we commonly remove the spleen in dogs and cats for various reasons. And, and even when we're removing it for a benign tumor, a tumor a meaning a tumor meaning a mass, a benign mass that can be cured by removing the spleen with the mass, um, and, and the animals live a long time afterwards, they, they rarely, if ever, have any problem related to not having their spleen. So the spleen is an organ that, that it's sort of an auxiliary sort of organ, I guess you could think of it as, and there are there are no major reasons not to remove a spleen. Okay, because yeah, with people I know that there's a risk of certain kinds of bacterial infections like those caused by pneumococcus, and so when people have their spleens removed, they have to get... Uh, a pneumococcal vaccine, a meningococcal vaccine, some other vaccines, and then even be on prophylactic antibiotics for at least a couple of years. But so what you're saying is that's not a concern for dogs and cats. Uh, no, I mean, but it may be in people, and it's just an example of you know species to species differences. There are big differences between people and dogs, and dogs and cats, and in the diseases we see or in the treatments that we do or how they respond to treatment or what side effects they might have to treatment, um, those things can vary quite a bit from species to species. So if there's a major difference between, I'm not a physician, so I'm, I don't know a great deal about, you know, the upsides and downsides of removing the spleen in a human, but if, if there are differences, it doesn't surprise me and they're probably just species related. And it's a good point because I am a physician and, you know, sometimes people will ask me medical 
questions related to their pets, and I'll say, ask your vet, don't ask me. Right. I think there are I think differences. That's, yeah, I think that's the right answer. There, there's, there are probably more similarities overall in physiology and anatomy and you know genetics between dogs and humans and cats and other animals than there are differences. But there are definitely differences. There are differences, yes. particularly in the spectrum of diseases that we see. We see different dif- diseases. And that's definitely um, the case with spleen tumors because they're really rare with people. So when my first dog was diagnosed with a spleen tumor, I thought, how could that happen? That's a really rare thing. And I learned, of course, from my vet that it wasn't. Is And does anybody have um, any idea what might cause spleen tumors in dogs? Any theories, whether it's environment, genetic, something else? Yeah, the the very short answer is is no, we don't know. Um, a somewhat longer answer is that there's a there's a variety of cancers in in people that we know are somewhat lifestyle related. Um, they're related to things like smoking and eating the wrong diet and lack of exercise and having too much stress in your life and those kinds of things. And there are a lot of cancers in human beings that seem to be at least associated with lifestyle issues. Um, And there are non-cancerous diseases of human beings that are associated with lifestyle issues like much cardiovascular disease or vascular disease. Um, Maybe there's a significant dietary component to those kinds of diseases. In general, in dogs and cats, it's different. For the most part, um, lifestyle issues are not a major cause of disease in dogs and cats, as best as we can tell. They don't smoke. They generally don't eat, you know, high-fat diets. Um, They may lead lifestyles that are too sedentary, and they may may overeat and be somewhat obesity-prone. But outside of that, you know, we don't see cigarette addiction or alcohol addiction or, you know, those kinds of things. So there's a whole spectrum of diseases that can happen in people that don't happen in dogs. Um, So our cancers in dogs are probably not, for the most part, lifestyle-related but what's different about dogs and cats, but dogs in particular from humans, is that um, dogs are more inclined to be, um, I, the, the word inbred is dangerous, but um, have genetic predilections to certain diseases that are somewhat breed-related. So all dogs on the planet are descendants of wolves whether it's a teacup poodle, you know, that's that weighs 7 pounds or it's a great dane that weighs 180 pounds, they're both descendants of wolves. And the way we got teacup poodles and we got great danes is by intentionally selecting dogs with certain physical or behavioral characteristics and breeding them together. And that's res- resulted in small gene pools. Uh, in within many breeds of dogs, and some of that breeding of dogs with like characteristics together has brought some undesirable characteristics with it. And so that's an issue in dogs that it's generally is generally not an issue in in humans, obviously. So 
Some of the diseases that we see in dogs, both cancerous diseases and non-cancerous diseases, are diseases that tend to cluster in certain breeds of dogs or certain sizes of dogs. And uh, splenic hemangiosarcoma, which is the main worrisome splenic tumor that we'll probably get to here pretty soon, um, is a disease that clusters in large breed dogs. We on, really only see it in large breed dogs. We rarely see it in little dogs, and we rarely see it in cats. It can happen, but it's it's generally a large breed dog disease. And there are certain large breed dogs that are prone to other diseases and then other cancers, and then there are certain other, like I said, non-cancerous diseases that tend to cluster in certain breeds. And sometimes the diseases that cluster in certain breeds are directly related to the very physical characteristic that the dogs are bred for. An example of that is what we call brachycephalic dogs that sort of have the smushed-in face appearance. Mm -hmm. Those dogs often have real difficulty breathing just because of the smushed-in face, the, the you know the, the sort of squished-in facial appearance that they have. So the very thing that they're bred for causes them problems breathing that sometimes require surgery. And other times, the the predilection to disease, the di to disease is totally unrelated to some physical characteristic that they're bred for. And cancers fall under that category. There, you know, we see certain cancers cluster in certain breeds, but it's it's totally unrelated to what they're bred for. So that was a long, long-winded way of saying <laughs> um, that, you know, I think there are, very often with cancers, I'm sure is true in people, we don't know the answer to what caused it. And we certainly don't know what causes splenic cancer in dogs, but there seems to be a hereditary component to it, at least, because it's a large breed dog disease that we don't see in small breeds. Okay, so... so um what kind of symptoms or findings might make a vet suspect that a dog has a spleen tumor? And once there's a suspicion, what do you do next to to um, confirm or rule out that diagnosis? Yeah, so I, maybe the first thing to just clear up is um, what me, what does the word tumor mean? So the word tumor just means an abnormal mass or bump someplace in the body. And it could be benign, meaning something that's not, going to spread to distant sites and very likely could be cured by removing it. Or it could be malignant, meaning it invades into tissue and or it can spread to distant sites. Um, so a tumor or a mass in the spleen, as it turns out, can be either. Not all masses in the spleen are, are malignant. But generally, dogs with masses in the spleen come in with one of, one of two categories of problems. One category would be just the mass becomes very, very large. Now it starts to actually cause abdominal distension that the owner might appreciate looking at the dog and might make the dog sort of just feel a little bit sick. So they come in with sometimes what we call vague, nonspecific signs, just sort of lethargy, poorer appetite, um, less you know, desire to get up and run outside, just sort of a maybe somewhat subtle change in their willingness to do stuff um, and maybe abdominal distension. The other category of signs would be acute signs. And the most common reason for sudden acute, more obvious signs is that 
any splenic mass in a dog has potential to bleed suddenly into the abdomen. And it can be very major bleeding. It usually probably doesn't usually cause death, although it certainly could. Um, but it can make a dog very, very suddenly extremely weak or even shocky. Um, so that's the other reason that dogs come in. It's usually one of those two things. And th it probably splits out about, I don't know, maybe 60% come in for bleeding-type problems and the other 40%-ish come in for, for other kinds of problems. I guess I was really lucky with my first dog that uh, she didn't have any symptoms and the vet discovered it on a well dog exam. Yeah, and I would and agree with, right, you were a little lucky, and I would agree with what your vet said to do in terms of removing the spleen, um, it, particularly if it was a large breed dog where there's a risk that it could be a tumor we'll talk about in a minute, probably hemangiosarcoma, um, because the prognosis for dogs is a little bit better if it, if it's removed before it bleeds. So once you, you know, you think the dog comes in with some some of those symptoms and you think the dog has a spleen tumor, so is surgery invariably needed for diagnosis or what tests what do you do to figure this out? Yeah, that's a slightly complicated question, but probably before we talk about that, we should talk about maybe what the possibilities are that we think of. So okay. the major possibility in the the possibility that um, some of your listeners have no doubt heard of or have even had dogs of theirs that had or friends' dogs that had is hemangiosarcoma. So hemangiosarcoma is a cancer, a malignant tumor, um, that arises from the blood, uh, blood vessels, the lining, the inner lining of blood vessels within the spleen. And the major problem with hemangiosarcoma is that it has a very high tendency, not maybe not 100%, but awfully close to it, to metastasize. In other words, to spread um, through the bloodstream to distant sites in the body before we even know that it's there. Um, so that's, that's probably the most common spleen mass that we see in dogs, and again, it's a tumor that usually occurs in large breed dogs. Um, probably the number two rule out is, um, in terms of its behavior, almost totally opposite to hemangiosarcoma. It's uh, a hematoma, which is a, just a big blood clot. And occasionally we'll see these in dogs, not quite as commonly as hemangiosarcoma, but pretty pretty frequently. And they probably arise from little um, bumps in the spleen that we call hyperplastic lesions. They're basically little bumps that form in the spleen or they can form in the liver too as an aging change. And for reasons we don't completely understand, on some, sometimes those, those uh, hyperplastic nodules in the spleen, which are otherwise not a problem at all, um, can bleed internally and form a, a big giant blood clot called a hematoma. And a he splenic hematoma uh, will not kill a dog. It might make a dog sick, and it might even bleed into the abdomen, um, but it has an excellent prognosis after it's removed. So when we see dogs come in with a splenic mass that we discover, one of the challenges for us is we typically don't know um, prior to surgery, whether it's something that's 
highly malignant and likely ultimately to be fatal, or whether it's something that's probably benign and curable by surgery. We generally don't know that. Probably if it's a smaller dog, smaller dogs, again, generally don't get hemangiosarcoma, then the probability of hematoma goes up. But if it's a large, or if it's a large breed dog, it could be hemangiosarcoma and it could be hematoma. We don't really know. There are other bumps and lumps and masses that can occur in the spleen, but they're rare enough that they're probably not that important to talk about. So as a general rule, when we see dogs present with a mass in the spleen, it's, it's one of those two problems. So <laughs> saying all that made me forget what your initial question was. What did you ask? <laughs> well, I was just going to ask, you know, once you think the dog has a spleen tumor, um, does the dog invariably need surgery? Or yes, need right. Uh, yeah, I'm sorry. So, um, yes, they invari- it's a disease that's treated surgically. They They definitely need surgery. There's no other way to treat them. So if the owner is going to do anything, it's their decision really is, do I do surgery or do I not? Um, so they do need surgery. Um, and I think the hard part, part for people and the hard part for us is it's very difficult for us to know prior to surgery whether the dog has hematoma or hemangiosarcoma if it's a large breed dog. Um, we can we can give an owner an idea of what the odds are, and I, and I, you know the odds are probably just taking all large breed dogs as a group. When you see a dog with that presents with a spleen mass, the odds are probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 70% that it's hemangiosarcoma, but that means there's a 30% chance that it's something completely curable. So owners often make have to make a decision for surgery or not with you know the possibility that it could be a highly and quickly fatal disease hemangiosarcoma or it could be something we could actually cure so how complex is the surgery and how long does it take the dog to recover um the surgeries unless the dog is in critical shape from blood loss going into surgery which we do sometimes see the surgery itself is really a relatively quick easy surgery to do. It's not very hard at all to take the spleen out. So it's, you know, we make an abdominal incision. Um, It's not something that can be done with minimally invasive type surgery, like with laparoscopy or anything like that. It requires a major abdominal incision, but dogs recover from major abdominal incisions remarkably well, much better, much faster than people do. So it's a major abdominal incision, but the surgery itself to remove the spleen is really not difficult. And for the most part, dogs recover really well and are able to go home within a couple of days, with the exception of the very sick dogs going into it who've had really major blood loss and or are very old geriatric dogs. And there's some risk of death, even in dogs that have had major blood loss. The the when we did a recent study of our, we see a lot of dogs with splenic masses here at Tufts. And a recent study we did, the more morta- perioperative mortality rate was about seven and a half percent. So that's much more a reflection of how sick some dogs are when they come in than it's a reflection of how dangerous splenectomy is. Splenectomy is not particularly dangerous. It's just that some dogs are very sick going into it. 
So once you've removed the spleen, um, how do you tell then whether that tumor is that you found is benign or malignant? Yes, correct. So once we remove the mass, we always, you can't tell what it is by looking at it. And it, something benign and something malignant in the spleen could look exactly the same. But once we've removed it, we submit it to the pathologist who looks at it under a microscope and then gives us an answer. And some of your listeners might be wondering, well, why don't you just do a biopsy beforehand, um, before the surgery is done, and try to figure out beforehand whether it's benign or malignant so the owner had, had, can have better information to make their decision to do surgery or not on. And the answer to that is that in most cases the the of hematoma or of hemangiosarcoma, the hemangiosarcoma if you picture these masses as huge masses, they're literally volleyball size sometimes, or even bigger than that. And the mass may consist of, you know, 5% hemangiosarcoma and 95% just blood clot. And so it's very hard to hit the the hemangiosarcoma part with a biopsy. You can't really tell from an ultrasound. Uh, exam, for example, exactly where within this giant mass the hemangiosarcoma part is. So doing an aspirate where we stick in a needle and, and withdraw some cells or doing a biopsy with a needle um, is a really low-yield test. It, 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 very often all we get is blood, regardless of whether the dog has hemangiosarcoma or hematoma. So that's why we don't do that in advance. But after it's removed, then then we're much more able to find the part that's hemangiosarcoma if it's there. And once you've found that hemangiosarcoma, I understand there's a scoring or staging system. And so, what are those stages, and how do they, and what do they mean for the prognosis for the dog? Yeah. So uh, all cancers. Um, have stages in humans and people, and the stage just means how advanced it is in the body. How how big is the tumor itself, what we call the primary tumor, the first tumor, and then has it spread to distant sites. And so the with hemangiosarcoma, there are three stages. And stage one, always in staging systems, the low numbers are better and the high numbers are worse. So stage one is dogs that just come in with a mass in their spleen and nothing else. It hasn't bled into the abdomen and there's no evidence that it's spread. Like I said at the beginning, it almost invariably has spread, but oftentimes when dogs first come in, it's the spread, the, the metastases are something that we, we can't necessarily see. They're microscopic. So by definition, we can't see them. So stage one is just a mass in the spleen, and that's all we can see. Stage two is a mass in the spleen that has bled in the, into the abdomen. And stage three is a mass in the spleen with metastases elsewhere in the body that we can actually see on an imaging test or, uh, or even on the surface of the body, I guess, with, with our eyes or by feeling them. Um, and the most common places spleen masses metastasize are either to the liver um, or to uh, sort of um, it, certain fatty tissues inside the abdomen um, or sometimes actually to the potentially to, to an area 
in the heart. Um, but the most common place, the place we worry about the most, is always the liver. And so we always look at the liver with an ultrasound prior to the surgery. The problem with that is that when we see bumps in the liver, they could be spread from the hemangiosarcoma or they could be just benign aging bumps in the liver. Those are hard to tell apart. That's, that's another challenge with hemangiosarcoma. So the staging system does to some degree predict outcome. But despite that, Virtually all dogs, almost all dogs, with hemangiosarcoma that have a splenectomy die. What the staging system tells us is not whether they're going to die so much, but how long it will be before they die. And dogs with stage 1 hemangiosarcoma, on average, um, live 5 to 6 months, on average. And probably 20 25%, maybe something like that live beyond a year. Um, stage 2 dogs, the, these are again are the ones that have had bleeding but no evidence of spread. The stage 2 dogs on average live about roughly two months on average um, and very few live beyond a year. And then among the stage 3 dogs, they on average seem to only live about one month um, and almost never live a year. The problem, again, is that before surgery, we don't know if a dog that has bumps in their liver is actually a stage 3 dog or, or not. So the stage 3 dogs turn out to be, prior to surgery, difficult to identify. Unfortunately, um, my son's dog had stage 3 mangiosarcoma, and, and she lived just over a month after her surgery. Yeah, so, and these numbers difficult. probably sound horrible to people, and they are horrible. I mean, it, it, so mangiosarcoma is probably the most rapidly fatal cancer that we see in dogs. There might be one or two competitors, but the mangiosarcoma is about as bad as it gets. The upside, the good side, or one good side, is the quality of that time is really good. Um, and, and these are medians that we're talking about. So what that means is that if the median is two months, that means half the dogs roughly live less than that and half live more. So dogs do have some chance of living more than those really poor numbers. And the quality of that time is really, really good. It's not like they're going to be wasting away from cancer during that however long they live. They're going to be happy, healthy dogs. And they're going to bounce back from surgery really quickly for the most part. So once the, the splenectomy is done, they can usually go home, at, you know, even one day post-op, more commonly two days, and, and by a week, most dogs are almost completely back to normal. And then they'll have a normal, you know, two to three to four months um, of good quality time left. For, so for a lot of people, it means their dog gets, you know, maybe another spring or summer or something like that. So um, a lot of people find even a short number of additional months to be something they really want to have. They'd far rather have it than not have it, which I would agree with. But the, the prognosis for the d disease is, is really not very good, the long-term prognosis. What sort of treatments do you offer uh, a dog after the tumor's been removed and you've staged it? What uh, Chemotherapy, radiation, what do you do? Yeah, well, radiation, no. So as as a general rule, radiation therapy is for 
tumors that we can't remove completely. Either we're totally unable to remove them or we can only remove part and we do radiation therapy to what's left. Here the problem is not that we can't remove it. We always can remove it. The problem here is metastases, the hemangiosarcoma in distant places in the body, most commonly the liver. So that's where chemotherapy comes in. Um, that's what chemotherapy is generally for, is for treating cancer that's in multiple places in the body. And it, it, from our experience and experience at other institutions and referral practices, it does seem that chemotherapy can help dogs with hemangiosarcoma. It probably doesn't cure them. So as a general rule, it's, it's not going to make the difference between survival and not survival. But what it might do is give more time. And um, when we looked at all our dogs here over a 10-year period that had surgery and then had chemotherapy afterwards or did not, the dogs that got chemotherapy lived longer. Not hugely longer, but, you know, longer. Something you, you could probably think of it as something like maybe a couple of months or maybe three months additional time for the average dog. So chemotherapy does seem to help. So that's that's room for you know optimism that we're going to make some progress. Yeah, I read in your article about a new type of chemotherapy called targeted chemotherapy. What's that? So um, yeah, that's something that uh, people are are likely to hear of in the in the media, no, not regarding dogs and cats, but regarding people. Um, so tar ke standard chemotherapy works by killing, directly killing uh, cancerous cells. They kill rapidly, chemotherapy agents kill rapidly dividing cells in particular because they damage the DNA in the cells. And the reason people that get chemotherapy get side effects is they the normal rapidly dividing cells in the body are also potentially killed by chemotherapeutic drugs. So the lining of the intestine is rapidly dividing, so pe people that get chemotherapy can get diarrhea or can get vomiting, those kinds of things. And the cells that make your hair are rapidly dividing. That's why your hair grows, and that's why people that get chemotherapy often have hair loss. Um, so those are the negatives of chemotherapy. And I should say, before I talk about the targeted therapy, as a general rule, dogs do not get the severe side effects from regular chemotherapy that people do because we don't want the side effects and dog owners don't want the side effects. So we treat dogs with somewhat lower doses of chemo than they treat people with. So for the most part, dogs that get chemotherapy relative to people sort of sail right through it. It's They can have side effects, there's no question, but um, it's not the sort of certain side effects that you know, people that get chemotherapy potentially get. Targeted molecular therapies are a category of therapies or of drugs that work through a different mechanism. Instead of directly damaging the DNA in the cell or the cell's ability to divide, they they block messages from um, growth factors or, or growth factor receptors on the surface of the cell. They block the messages of those of those receptors to tell the cell to divide so this it, we they block sort of internal signaling method mechanisms within the cell that tell the cell to divide 
Um, so they slow division of the cell by that mechanism. Um, and the, the reason they're called targeted, I guess you could think of it two ways. They target certain receptors on the surface of the cell, and, and they target cells that have certain types of receptors on the, on the surface. So um, they work by a completely different mechanism, and they in part have appeal because it's possible potentially in the future to, using these kinds of therapies, pick um, drugs that target specific proteins in or on the cell that an individual person's tumor might have. So there's potential with these kinds of therapies to tailor the treatment to the exact tumor that the patient, the individual patient has, whereas chemotherapy just is a more blunt instrument that sort of attempts to do the same thing to any kind of cancer. Hopefully that made sense. It did. And yeah. Thanks. Those are pretty much the questions that I prepared. Is there anything else you think my listeners should know about spleen tumors? Um, no, I think you definitely hit the the major parts of it. Um, and I wouldn't want people to get the impression from this discussion of spleen tumors that all cancers in dogs and cats are as bad as as um, spleen cancer is. Spleen cancer is quite common, but most cancers in dogs and cats are actually behave a mu- much better than spleen cancers do. So people shouldn't freak out if they see a lump or bump on their dog or one is d- diagnosed in their dog. Um, many lumps and bumps are, are completely benign and easy to treat, and many of even the ones that turn out to be cancer have much better behaviors than splenic hemangiosarcoma does. So people should be vigilant as their dogs and cats age, looking for lumps and bumps and seeing their veterinarian on a regular basis, maybe a couple of times a year so they can get lumps or bumps diagnosed early. But they're not necessarily going to behave anywhere nearly as badly as splenic masses can. But other than that, I think you've, you've asked all the important questions. Well, thanks. And if any of my listeners do think of questions, we'll be able to email them to me and I'll forward them to you so I can get the answers for them. Sounds good. Thanks again. All right, Eva.